Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Good morning, church. How many of you guys know what Place of Hope is? So half of you do. Place of Hope is a Christian drug and alcohol rehab center here in Columbia, and it's something that we're trying to invest in heavily as a church. We believe in what they're doing over there. Um, October 4th, I'll be preaching in a kind of a, a two-week revival that they're having over there for the staff, and uh, we invite you all to come out on that night. But those journals are going to be used during that time, and uh, you know, so it's encouragement for these guys that are guys and gals that are going through the program. You want to take one of those home. You want to encourage somebody. You want to write what the Lord puts on your heart to put in those things. And listen, those things, that could yield fruit endlessly in their lives. So you definitely want to take one of those, bring it back next week, and pour into these people's lives. They're in a broken state, and they need some encouragement. So I encourage you to do that. Also, a couple other things before we get going this morning. I don't know if you guys know this or not, but we are graced with a newly married couple here today. Uh, we, we have, uh, well, actually two, two, actually. So we have Mr. and Mrs. Seth Colwell right over here. They just got married a couple weeks ago. You guys stand up so everybody knows who you are. Awesome. Listen, when I did their wedding two weeks ago, I was imagining my daughter coming down. I was like, like I was speechless. It was such a beautiful time. Thank you guys for the honor to do that. Also, uh, Ron and Lori Hendrickson got married yesterday. So, there we go. So, what a blessed time, man. And uh, it's so encouraging to see what the Lord is doing in people's lives. And anybody else get married yesterday? No? Okay. So, what a great time. Well, listen, we just finished up. The book of Philemon, and uh, so as I told you, we're going to do, uh, we we're, we're going to have share Sunday. We have one guy that's going to share today, and uh, on on whatever it is that he received from the book of Titus or Philemon. So, Mr. Tim Mauricio is going to come up and share with us. Hey, something that you don't know about Tim is Tim is deaf, and so he's gonna he's gonna speak to us and encourage us. And man, this guy. I can't wait for him to share his testimony with you guys because it is unbelievable. Tim, come on up, brother. Awesome. Thank you. Good morning. Um, Let me get this situated here. I've been reflecting a lot about our study through Titus and Philemon, and um, the Lord has just really impressed a couple of things upon my heart. And uh, first of all, one of the things I've really gleaned from this, and it was just a sober reminder for me, was that love always seeks the greatest good of the other person or persons. I don't care what the world says about love. Really, it's got a pretty warped conception of it. Biblical love always, always seeks the greatest good of the other person or persons collectively. Paul was always thinking about other people. I love that about him. Can't wait to meet him someday. You know, it's just he was always thinking and putting himself in their shoes and their positions. And, and I was thinking about he had to have this mindset. He does this in so many of his letters that he answers questions, puts himself like, okay, what would somebody ask me? And then he answers the questions. And so he must have done this in the case of Philemon. He's saying to himself, I'm sending Onesimus back as a slave to him who under the law could be put to death. Now, I know 
Solomon's going to have some questions here. Like what? Well, the first thing I would be thinking of, great, Paul, you send this guy back to me. Now, what are all the other slave owners going to think? I mean, in the Roman Empire, they estimate there was somewhere between 6 to 10 million slaves, 40% of the Roman Empire population. That's a huge number. So here we got this guy, Philemon, who has the home church in Colossae. He's hosting this home church, and he's probably associated being a slave owner with other Christian slave owners. And so he's wondering, what are they going to think of me about this? The other thing that I think is critical is he, uh, Philemon, was probably thinking, great, if I take Onesimus back, what is this going to communicate to all the other slaves? Are they going to all of a sudden develop an attitude like, hey, you just set a precedence. We can do whatever we want to do, and because you're a Christian slave owner, you are commanded to forgive me no matter what. Here's something that I really drew from this. That Paul, knowing this, stepped out. See, he inserted this clause. If we read too fast, we missed it. But it's right here in verse 18, and he says, if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. But this word if in the Greek isn't like creating some sort of a doubt. It reads better like this. Since he has wronged you, whatever he owes you, you put that on my account. Oh, this is great, because this is a promissory note. See, Paul thought of this. What he did is he contractually obligated himself to Philemon. And he's saying, hey, Philemon, listen to me on this now. Whatever he owes you, you put that on my account. Now, that saves Philemon huge because what he can then do is tell all the other slave owners and he can tell all the other people that I have a contractual obligation worked out with this guy named Paul. We've settled the matter. That is where love steps out in action. And this is one of the key things as well that I learned from this. Paul knew Charity comes at a cost. I don't care what we're about to offer to somebody, whether it's love, mercy, or grace. It's going to cost us. And if it doesn't, it's cheap. I don't know about you, but I'm becoming more and more convicted, as Pastor Tim took us through this, that I want my love to others to cost me dearly. And whatever the cost, I want to have an attitude that I'm willing to pay it. The other thing is this. It's just another great truth that really hit me and that comes from the book of Titus, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, where he wrote, he's encouraging the pastor there, Titus, right? And he's saying, hey, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, and hear me on this, showing all humility to all men. Now, I'm going to take that simply to mean this. You and I are to act with humility at all times to all people under all circumstances. Why? Because humility before God leads us to repentance, then to remorse, genuine sorrow for our sins, which leads to confession of our sins, prompting forgiveness, which promotes reconciliation. And I'm just going to tell you, after years of being on this planet and working towards restoration, that is God's prescription for the disease of broken fellowship. It is strong medicine. Family, I'm going to tell you, it's not an easy pill to digest, but humility is what is needed first and foremost. That is what will kill pride. 
That's what will bring us to the point of true repentance, remorse, confession, seeking, pleading, whatever the case may be. We are living in a culture right now, and prominently amongst Christians, where we've adopted an ideology, an ideology of entitlement forgiveness. You have to forgive me because you're a Christian. You owe it to me. So then there's no more responsibility. Like the person doesn't have to come and confess their wrongdoing. And I am just absolutely convinced on this, that just as pride comes before the fall, humility and costly love are what must come before true biblical reconciliation. That is the way it works in our relationship with God, and that is the way it works with one another. Amen? Thank you so much, bro. Awesome. Appreciate you. Wow, great. It's always interesting to uh, get people's different perspectives as we go through these things. And, you know, it's, it's not about the teaching. It's about the Word of God. Because you can sit here and get something totally different um, from the message. We want to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying, right? So it's not about just what's coming from the pulpit, but what is the Holy Spirit doing in your life? So as we go through the book of Revelation, you jot those things down that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about because at the end of it, you'll have an opportunity to share, and uh, it'll be a great time. So with that said, open up to the book of Revelation. We are going to be going verse by verse through the book of Revelation, and it is, uh, it's going to be an awesome time. I cannot wait. I've been waiting for this. Been, been uh, feeling the Lord stirring my heart to come to the book of Revelation, and uh, we are going to do it now. By the way, it is not, first, first thing I'm going to teach you right now, it is not the book of Revelations. It's the book of Revelation. It's one revelation. Stand with me. We're going to read our text this morning. Revelation chapter 1. Here is the word of the Lord. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show it to his servants, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we are so excited to be in this book, the revealing of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, this is not just about apocalyptic times. This is about your son, Jesus Christ, and seeing him in his glory seeing him for who he was before creation began. And we ask you, Lord, to keep our hearts on track, to keep our minds focused on the one revelation that is being laid out in these 22 chapters. It is about Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we ask you to prepare our hearts to receive what it is that you desire for us. And your word promises us here seven times through the book of Revelation that we will be blessed if we read this word aloud, if we understand it, if we, if we hold on to it. And so we ask you by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to come and teach us. We want to know. We want to hear. We ask you to come now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right. 
the book of Revelation. It is perhaps the most fascinating book in all of the Bible. It's filled with crazy creatures and casalytic, uh, I can't even say the word. I'm not even going to try. Crazy events. How about that? There we go. It is amazing, man. But it's not amazing for some people. Some people come to the book of Revelation with fear and trembling, afraid, uh, not knowing if they're going to, they don't believe that they're going to be able to understand it and all of these sorts of things with these preconceived ideas that God has given us a book that is concealed. And I want to tell you that if you come to the book of Revelation like that, you're coming in the wrong way. You're coming in the wrong way. This is the the revelation, the apocalypsis. That's the Greek word where we get our word apocalypsis. And it is where it is really a revealing and uncovering. This is not a concealing. God is not concealing his word in the book of Revelation. He is revealing it. And so we can know what the book of Revelation has to say to us. This is not a mystery that God is trying to hold back from us, you know, sort of coding it out so that we have to use all these weird things to come up with some interpretation of the Word of God. What we need to do is come in humility by the Holy Spirit, and we will understand what this book says. And it is something that uh, there's such an amazing thread. When I remember the very first time I read the book of Revelation, as I was reading through the book, the books of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, I came to Revelation. The very first time I read through the entire Bible, I came to the close of Revelation chapter 22. And you know what I said to myself? What a mean God. God is so mean. I literally said that, no joke. I was a brand new Christian. I read through the Bible and the things that I understood, I understood God to be a God of justice, a God of judgment, a God who doesn't put up with sin. And that he is, folks. That he is. But as I read through the books of the Bible over and over and over again, I don't know how many times I've read through the books of the Bible. I am now going through right now. If you've been following my devotions, I started in Genesis. I'm in Matthew right now. I write devotions five times a week. You can find them on our website. But check this out. Every time I read it, the more I read the Bible, you know what I'm saying to myself? What a gracious God he is. What an incredibly gracious God he is. And if you don't come to the book of Revelation understanding that this is the grace of God, you're missing the entire book. The book of Revelation is the grace of God at work, his last-ditch effort to tell this dying world that he loves us and that he wants us to be in relationship with him. He's giving people one last chance. People are saying, well, why don't you just show me a sign? Oh, he will show us a sign. And it'll be an incredible sign. But do you know what? Sadly, so many will say, I don't want to believe. Sadly, in the book of Revelation, we will read, there will be the majority of people will run to the mountains and hide in the rocks and ask the rocks to fall on them rather than bow their knee to Jesus Christ. This is the heart of man. This is the depravity of man. But God is such a gracious God. And he knowingly, uh, he knew how people will still respond to his grace in these last days. Some will be saved. Some will be saved. But he, but he gave us this book anyway, and he is going to follow out his plan exactly as he said he would because he loves us. And he's gracious. And you know what? It would be one thing if we were just on this earth trying to figure out life, but we have a, we have a guide in the, the, uh, in this world, uh, the Bible, 
basic instructions before leaving earth. God wants us to know his plan, and we can know his plan. From the beginning to the end, he laid it out for us in 66 books. And I am so excited to be in this last book to talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is a tragic misnomer to come to this book in thinking that it is concealed. It is not. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Somebody likened the book of Revelation to the way that Winston Churchill likened Russia. He said Russia was a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. The book of Revelation is not that, folks. It is not that at all. It is the revealing of Jesus Christ, not the concealing. So as we come to the book of Revelation, what we will find is God's final thoughts for man. God's final acts towards man. The book of Revelation is, uh, is, not, is not written in code. It's not meant for us to speculate and insert our own ideas into it. It's meant for us to read, study, and to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to give us the interpretation. And if we seek him in this, we will find the interpretation of these things. Um, we, we, have not, we won't have a perfect understanding of these things. Of course, there are many things in the, the book of Revelation that we just have to wait and see what exactly they mean. You know, you have to put yourself in the position of the writer here. Could you imagine? Literally, I, I, as I understand it, the way that this was given was, um, you know, John was in the spirit. I believe literally, physically in Patmos, but in the spirit, somewhere else in the spiritual realm, seeing these things take place. Could you imagine having to write these things down? What in the world is that? How do I write that down? And, of course, we speculate on many of the events that will take place and what they will be, whether they will be, you know, nuclear blasts or these things or that things. Here's what we know, that John was expressing to us things that he saw. And these things were given to him by Jesus Christ through an angel. And so, you know, we'll do our best as we navigate through these things. But, but here's the reality of it is we don't have to know all the symbolisms and what they mean. What we need to keep on the red line all the way through the word, and that is that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. God is trying to show us something new about Jesus. And that's how we will take a look at this, this book here. Uh, my notes are all messed up for some reason. It's like they didn't load right or something. Before we dive into the book of Revelation, what I want to talk about is how we will approach this book interpretively. I think it's important that, you know, we all have different methods the way that we read the Bible and such, and there are various different methods of interpretation when you come to the Bible. How many Bible students do we have in the room here today? We have a few Bible students. So, so let me ask you, what is the very first hermeneutical principle? What is the very first one? Who knows? Someone say it. Huh? Nope. It is, let, that, that's the third one. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. Number one hermeneutical principle. When we come to the Word of God, it doesn't matter what book that we're coming to, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. The very first thing that we try and do when we come to a book and we're trying to understand something is we look in the Bible for where else it's being talked about or we look for other mentions so that we can gain understanding from those things. We always let the Bible interpret the Bible. That is the first hermeneutical rule. 
Uh, the second hermeneutical rule is, and you know this, always keep it in context. You cannot take the Word of God out of context. When you take it out of context, then you're going to mess up the meaning of it. You cannot interpret Scripture if you don't understand the context. So that's number two. Number three is you let it say what it says. You let the Word of God say what it says. You don't read into the Word of God. We don't eisegesis. We exegesis. That means we draw the meaning out of the text. We don't put meaning into the text. That's how we approach Scripture. Now, there are different hermeneutical approaches when it comes to the book of Revelation. The way that people read the book of Revelation. There are four main ways that people read the book of Revelation. The very first one is the non-literal or allegorical approach. And I'm taking these definitions from John Woolvoord, who is, who I believe to be perhaps one of the most um, profound uh, commentators on the book of Revelation. If you don't have his commentary, you want to grab it and go through it. He uh, has a great grasp of, of the book of Revelation. And so, but John uh, Wolvard says that the non-literal or allegorical approach originated from the Alexandria School of Theology and Clement of Alexandra in origin. They taught that the book of Revelation was one great allegory going far beyond natural symbolisms, which is found in the book. They understood in a non-literal sense, much of what other expositors interpreted literally. So lit they just kind of take a symbolic approach to the book of Revelation. Um, you know, and, and I will say the trouble with that is that when you come to the, the Word of God and you read it non-literally and you look at it symbolically, you can make it say whatever you want to make it say. It's very difficult to stay within the context of the Word of God if you read it in that manner. Some use the preterist approach, which generally holds the book of Revelation as a record of conflicts of the early church with Judah, with the Judaism and paganism, with the closing chapters 20 through 22, constituting a picture of the contemporary triumph of the church. Though similar in some ways to the allegorical method, it's considered revelation as symbolic history rather than prophetic. The preterist view in general, tends to destroy any future significance of the book, which becomes a literal curiosity with little, with little prophetic meaning. So you have the preterist approach. Then you the third approach is the historical approach. Those who ascribe to this view consider Revelation as a symbolic presentation of the totality of church history. Um, from, from the beginning of the church to the second advent of Christ. They just say this is just sort of a, a collective history of, of the church there, and, and they describe it as such. Um, and then we finally come to what is known as the futurist approach. Most expositors with this view are premillennial. They hold the book of Revelation as futuristic, beginning with chapter 4, and therefore subject to future fulfillment. Some have attempted to make even chapters 1, 2, and 3 futuristic, and the seven churches as future assemblies. But the, the great majority of futurists began with chapter 4. Under, system of under this system of interpretation, the events of chapters 4 through 19 relate to the period just preceding the second coming of Christ. This is generally regarded as a period of seven years with emphasis on the last three and a half years labeled the Great Tribulation. 
So we have these four different approaches. And listen, there some of you in this room are they ascribe to one or you know, kind of lean towards one of these views. And it's okay. But as I teach through the book of the Bibles and as I've learned myself, I take the futurist approach. That's how I will teach through the book of Revelation. I believe that what's being spoken of here is future. The very first three chapters, and we see the outline. I mean, you can see the outline that the Lord gives. He tells John in, in, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, he says, write, therefore, the things that you've seen, those that are, and those that will take place after this. I believe that we find uh, chapter 1 as the things that he's seen, um, the things that are are chapters 2 and 3. This is the church during the church. The churches that John is, that are present during John's time as he's writing this. That's present day for him as he's writing these things. But then at chapter 4, through really the rest of the book, is all future. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. Now, some people believe that that's happening now. Some people believe that it's happened in the past. And that all comes down to the way that you approach the, the book of Revelation. I'm approaching it that chapters 4 through the rest of the book are still future, that we're living in the days when these things are going, going to come about. So that's how I'm going to approach this. I believe that um, chapters 4 through 19 speak of the tribulation period to the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 speaks of uh, the, the millennial reign of Christ. And chapters 21 and 22 speak of the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem and, the, and life in the new kingdom. I read these events as future, and I take much of what's being said literally. I think, how do we read the Bible, folks? Literally. We read the Bible literally. When the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, literal or non-literal? Literal. God is saying, and there are some things that are non-literal. And so we have to decipher how do we know what is literal and what is non-literal? Well, I love the way that Pastor Chuck defined this. He said, when the literal sense makes perfect sense, make no other sense lest you make nonsense. In other words, what he's saying is, let the Bible say what it says, and if it doesn't make sense, then that's probably symbolism. Otherwise, it's non-literal. We need to read the Bible literally unless it contradicts itself in some way or it doesn't make sense. That's how we read the Bible. And, you know, part of the problem with many of these approaches when it comes to allegorical readings of the text or non-literal readings of the text is, how do you know what's literal and what's not literal if that's your approach? That's the problem. And maybe you have an answer for that. But for me, I like to just come at the text going, it's literal. And then if it doesn't make sense, I go, okay, I have to look at this in a different light. But I can tell you that that's not really failed me much. Not really failed me much to come at it that way. I believe that God wrote these words literally for us. And we should take them literally. So we're going we're gonna to read the book of Revelation literally unless it doesn't make sense. So that's how we're going to come about it. Now, again, I know that there's many different uh, people that have different interpretations of the book of Revelation. Here's, here's what I want to say is that this, is, uh, this should never divide people. This should not divide the body of believers. And you know what? Sadly, it does. You get into a group of people. This is one of those eschatology, the study of end times, is one of those subjects that 
um, it, it's almost as divisive as Calvinism versus Arminianism. I mean, it's like it's one of those major divisional things in the church, and people start sort of movements based on what they believe on some of these things. That is not what God's intention was in, in writing the book of Revelation for us. When Jesus gave this revelation to an angel to give to John, his intention was, I want to help my people understand what is going to happen. And you know what? The enemy has tried to divide the church. He's tried to bring confusion into the way. And you know, it's sad. We don't want to let him do that. We don't allow him to do that. And I'm going to do my best to, not, to, to really challenge my own theology as I go through this. I think it's important, listen, whenever you read the Bible, that you read the Bible freshly, not from the preconceived conceptions that you have, but when you open up the Word of God, every time you open it up, you say, Lord, speak to me. Lord, I'm not coming, I'm not coming at this text with some preconceived ideas. I'm coming at this text fresh. I want to know what you want to say to me about these things. Now, of course, the foundation never changes. Jesus Christ and Him crucified never changes. It's never going to be salvation by works. It's always going to be salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, period. You're never going to read anything else different. But when it comes to some of these subjects that are, you know, there's lots of interpretations to, we want to do our best to challenge ourselves, to grow to really solidify what we believe. You're called to be a steward of the Word of God, folks. You're called to rightly divide the Word. That's just not for pastors. That's for every one of us. We need to know the Word of God. And when it comes to eschatology, which was a major teachings of Jesus Christ Himself, we want to know what we believe. We don't want to be recalling, oh, what did He say about that? Um... What was it that he said? No, who cares what he said? What do you say? What do you say about the Word of God? That's what it comes down to, folks. You need to know the Word of God. So we're going to approach this hopefully open-heartedly, and we're going to allow the Word of God to say what it says and come at it with a fresh, new perspective and allow the, the Lord to speak to us, man. I'm encouraged. I'm excited. I've taught through the book of Revelation, but I'm not using anything that I've done before. I'm starting fresh. I'm going to start brand new, so hopefully you will come at it the same way. Just by way of background, the book of Revelation was written around 95 to 96 AD. This is like 60 years after Jesus ascended from, from the earth, and so Jesus is in heaven. John is the last living apostle when he receives this text. All the other apostles are dead. They've all been martyred. They're all gone. John is the last one. And by the way, John would have been gone too, but God preserved his life. John was living in a time during the, during the sort of the second wave of persecution that came under, uh, came by way of the emperor Domitian. Now, uh, historians say that, you know, Domitian was a violent madman who persecuted Christians. He had a focus on Christians. He was looking for Christians, and he wanted to persecute Christians. John was in Ephesus during the time, and he wrote many of the things that, he, he wrote the book, the, uh, the Gospel of John, and then uh, he wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And so he was there in Ephesus pastoring that church and just d doing his thing, and Domitian had come to Ephesus. Don't know how it all went down, but somehow John 
uh, you know, got in the way of Domitian. John was teaching against emperor worship. Domitian was one of the only um, Roman emperors that really forced people to call him God. And so John was teaching against that. Somehow there was some, some way they got, came into contact with each other. And Domitian tried to boil him in, in hot oil, and he did not die. He did not die. I, I don't know how fun that was for John, but he survived it. The Lord preserved him. So here's what happened. Rather than Domitian just slay him with a sword or something like that, he banishes him to the island of Patmos, which is basically a rock island where they send prisoners and they sent, you know, people that, that the Roman Empire wanted to be rid of. They just sent them there to die. So John is sent there on the island of Patmos. He's there. There's really nothing there. There's a few things. There's a harbor and some things like that. They, they probably export rocks off of that island and such, but the reality of it is, is he's there starving, waiting on the Lord. Lord, what do you want to do with me? You, you ever been in that place where you feel like you're on a rock island and you're like, what am I doing here? Sometimes you're there because God is going to do perhaps the most profound work in, in your life that you've ever, had, you've ever seen. John received something that nobody else received. John is sort of in the same light, I would say, as Daniel was in his time. Daniel received things that God said, Daniel, seal up these books. They're not even for you, but I've revealed these things for other people through you. Daniel got to see things that were amazing, and John did too. And it was in that, that place of hardship, in that place where he was banished and, you know, isolated, and he felt all alone, and the Lord said, don't worry, I have something planned here. And so he, he gives him... This, this revelation, this, this uh, revelation of Jesus Christ, the revealing of Jesus Christ here. There's four things that I want to show you in these first three verses regarding an introduction to the book of Revelation. First, we're going to find uh, the, the person of the revelation, the purpose, the penman, and the promise. First, the person of the revelation. We see in verse 1, it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. In these first four words, it's three Greeks and the three words in the Greek, define for us what this book is about. It is about the revelation, single tense again, not plural, it's single tense. There's only one revelation, one revealing, and it's not the events that will take place in the book, folks. They just happen to be here. This is the revelation of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the central theme of the book of Revelation. His name, by the way, is not Jesus Christ. Christ isn't his last name. Jesus' is first name. His name is Jesus, and his title is Christ. The word Christ literally means anointed or Messiah, the anointed one or Messiah. Although this is a revelation given from Jesus, it's more correct to think that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ because that's what it says here. The book reveals Jesus in a new way for us. Jesus was uh, revealed in the four Gospels in different ways, wasn't he? So we see Jesus being revealed um, through the book of Matthew as the king of the Jews, the rightful Messiah. We see him revealed through the book of Mark as the suffering servant. We see him revealed in the book of Luke as the son of man. We see him revealed in the book of John as God the son. Jesus revealed to us in four different ways in his humanity 
through the Gospels. Now we have a different revelation. This is a different perspective. This is a different way of showing us who Jesus is. Jesus is seen in the book of Revelation as the glorified one, as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the judge of all that is created. Every description of Jesus in the book of Revelation is one of majesty, power, and glory. In Revelation 1, 5 through 20, Jesus is revealed as the majestic one. In, Reve in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus is revealed as Lord over the church. In chapters 4 through 22, Jesus is presented as the glorious judge and creator who will come and restore his kingdom to this world, sit on his glorious throne in his temple, and rule and reign forever and ever. Amen. This is not the revelation of John. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Just like the book of Acts is not the acts of the apostles, it's the acts of the Holy Spirit. John is simply a scribe here, folks. He's simply jotting down what he's been given. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice, which God gave to him. The book of Revelation is a gift from God the Father to God the Son. It's so interesting that it is. This gift is literally his exaltation in heaven because of his humility on earth. Now, where have we read that before in the New Testament? Paul wrote in the book of Philippians about this. He talked about the humility of Christ and then the exaltation of Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, listen, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every, other, every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The book of Revelation is literally the revealing of Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. This is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. This is God the Father saying, Son, you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have served well. You will be exalted now. Every name, every tongue will confess that you are Lord Jesus. Every knee will bow at you because you have done these things. You have come and humbled yourself and given yourself as the offering. MacArthur comments regarding this process. He says, The first token of the Father's pleasure with the obedient Son was His resurrection. The second was His ascension. The third was the sending of the Holy Spirit. And the last was the gift of the book of Revelation, which promises and reveals the glory that will be Christ at His second coming. The book of Revelation is the gift of God to the Son. God has given revelation to Him, and it is about Him. This is the person of the revelation. Next, we find the purpose of the revelation. Continuing on in verse 1 there, it says, the, I'm just going to read the whole thing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to, to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. Notice the revelation of Jesus Christ was given by God to Jesus to show his servants the things that must take place, that soon take place. 
Jesus wants to show us something. Again, right away, this is not a concealing, the revelation, it's a revealing, but then he says, I want to show you what's going to happen. He wants us to know these things. These aren't hidden. Jesus is, de is, is defining for us all of the th things about himself that we need to know. He tells us that he is he's showing those things to his servants. Again, that, that could be translated slaves. It's speaking of bond slaves. It's speaking specifically of John. Because John is his bond servant. You know what a bond servant is, right? A doulos in the Greek. It is the, literally a slave who's been set free, who decides that, hey, I want to be a slave to this master. He's a good master. I have a, maybe he, they even have a family built within, um, you know, his, uh, under his rulership or whatnot. And so he says, I want to stay with you forever. I want to give you the rest of my life. So he becomes what's called a bond servant. We find the practice in Exodus chapter 21, verses 5 through 6. It says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. That's what he's talking about here. Who is, who is Jesus trying to show these things to? His bondservants. Not people who are just fans of Jesus. Not just people who are somewhat interested in the Bible. Those people, this book will be closed to. It's not meant for them. It's meant for bond servants of Jesus Christ, true followers of Jesus Christ. How many people have tried to read the, the Bible not having the mind of Christ, not having the spirit of Christ, and totally don't get it? How many of you have ever done that? I've done that. I want to tell you a story. Before I got saved... I went into church with my wife. She wanted to go to church, and I went. And it was, uh, no joke, I'm not kidding you, I felt like I was in an episode of Peanuts. <laughs> and I thought the teacher was saying, wah, wonk, wah, wonk, wonk, wonk. No joke. I literally understood nothing. I sat here in, in one of those seats like that, listening to the guy going, what are these people doing? Why are they here? What is all this about? But do you know, it's interesting how the seed of the word works because it's just sown and it just sits there. And sometimes the Satan comes and grabs it and steals it, but sometimes it's there. And somebody else comes and they pour a little water on it and at some point, it could actually sprout and take root. And that's what happened. But while I was there, I understood nothing. You cannot understand the Bible, period, without the Spirit of God. But here's the reality of it. You will never understand the book of Revelation if you're not a servant of Christ. It's not for anybody else, folks. This is for you and I. This is for bond servants of Jesus Christ. He is revealing this thing to us. It's a gift from God to Jesus to you. He does not want you to be in the dark. He wants you to understand these things. And so he gives them to us. He's, he's showing us, notice, the things that must soon take place. This is the revealing of things to come. That's why I named the series Things to Come. Because that's what it's all about. It's about the things that Jesus is going to do 
here in these last moments of the world until he comes back, sets up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years, and then he destroys the earth and casts the enemy and um, all of his minions into the lake of fire along with the Christ-rejecting world, and he creates a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and we live with him forever and ever. Amen. He's going to show us all these things. He wants us to know these things. And there's a purpose for why he wants us to know these things. The reason why Jesus is revealing these things to us is to keep us active, to keep us focused, to keep us on mission. We know the end game, folks, and guess what? We win. We win. We're not wondering what's going to happen. We're not so sucked up into who's sitting in the office in Washington, D.C. that we're worried about what's going to happen because we already know what's going to happen. We don't have every detail figured out, but we have the biggest detail figured out. We win. Period. It doesn't matter how it all works out. At the end of the day, I know I'm going home to be with the Lord. And if you're a believer, you know that too. You don't have to worry about any of these things. Why? Because he's revealed it to you. He's shown it to you. Jesus does not want you to live in the dark. He wants you to understand these things. So he's giving these things to us. He's showing us the things that must take place soon. Now that word soon there, it means prompt, swift, quickly. It's speaking of abruptness, not necessarily a period of time, but what he's saying is when it happens, it's going to happen so fast that it's going to blow people's minds. It's going to catch people off guard. Wolvard comments, he said, the idea is not the event may occur soon, but that when it does, it will be sudden. It's speaking of imminence. We don't know when these things are going to take place, but when they do, it's just going to be boom, 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 and, and people will not be ready for it. We read that in the Bible too, didn't we? Paul wrote that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He said, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. He's like, dude, you guys already know these things. Why? Because Jesus has revealed these things to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will be upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying the world is going to be in a place of comfort when this happens. What do you think is, is the world is trying to do right now? Get into a state of comfort. Hey, let's just all get along. Everybody say all the same things, and we do the same things, and we fall into these lines, and we'll be in a state of comfort. But, but then all of a sudden, sudden destruction will happen. It's exactly what's happening, folks. The Lord is in control, and the pieces of the puzzle are being put into place for his purposes. The enemy is not winning here. God is allowing things to happen so that these things can unfold correctly so that the world can be in a state that it's prepared to be abruptly interrupted by, uh, you know, cataclysmic events that happen. I said it. Whoa. Yes. So, he goes on. But you are not in the, you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief in the night, verse 5. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Notice the exhortation here. Paul is saying, Christians, pay attention. Study eschatology. Make sure you understand. He's telling these guys, I don't even need to write to you about these things because you already know them. The question is, do you? Do you already know them? 
Do you know them in your heart? I'm not talking about do you listen to YouTube people and you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, let me listen to something else. And you're just kind of getting all kinds of different thoughts. I'm talking about you sitting down with the Word of God and allowing the Holy Spirit to tell you and to teach you exactly what you need to know. Because let me tell you something. I've learned very quickly that, um, you know, information that I'm just listening to is different than information that I'm receiving. Because information that I'm just listening to doesn't necessarily hold when I'm in a hardship. When I'm on a hardship, you know, what, you know what's unearthed out of me? The things that I've put in me, the things that I've studied, the things that I've held on to. When there's nothing like reading the Word of God, folks, and the Lord just giving you a nugget. Like, this is for you. And the Word of God becomes alive, and you're like, whoa, I'm, I'm going to hold on to that thing. We should have a, a catalog of those things in our, in our hearts, folks. If you read the Word of God on a daily basis, you're going to have nuggets that you're going to pull from in hard times. So you need to read the Word of God, not just listening to what other people think about it. What do you think? You're not going to give an account to the Lord about what somebody else thought about His Word. He wants you to know it personally. And so you study it. And, and He doesn't want... Here, here's the purpose of, of us studying eschatology is that we will stay awake. That's what Paul is saying. You know, people that don't pay attention to the world, you know what they do? They fall asleep. Why are we paying attention to the world? Because we're trying to place every single event that happens into the Bible? No. Because that also is an error. But here's what we're trying to do. We're trying to sort of keep an eye on what's happening in the world and matching it to what we read in the Word of God and saying, huh, it's interesting. There's signs. We're not following signs. We're not looking for signs. We're just simply living our lives, paying attention, and as those signs come about, then we're going, oh, that's interesting. Look at that. What's well, interesting that China's preparing for things, and, you know, and it's interesting that, you know, that, that, that Russia and all, you know, that all these things are aligning, and, and Israel's sort of standing on its own, that we're pulling all of our troops out of the Middle East. It's interesting that those things are happening. Are those specific prophecies? Maybe, maybe not. But here's what's interesting, that the, the Middle East is, is lining up, folks. It's lining up. And that's what we're looking to. And we're saying, well, let's see what happens here. It'll be interesting to see what happens, you know. And so we pay attention. Because if we don't, we'll get sucked into the world and we'll lose our mission. You'll lose your mission because, you know, and how many Christians, let me, let me ask you this. So, how many of you have ever heard somebody say, Man, people have been saying Jesus is coming back forever. How many of you guys have ever heard that? Yeah, like six of you. Awesome. So it's really going to. But, but here's the thing. When people say that, you know what? They fall asleep. And if that's you, I'm sorry. I'm just saying you fall asleep because you're thinking, what are you saying? You're not ready for the imminent return of Christ if you're saying something like that. You're saying, yeah, who knows? Here's the thing is, who does know? But, that, but, but you know what Jesus told us to do? Be ready. Dude, we should be ready at every moment because it could happen at any moment. We're not to fall asleep. The purpose of us getting this revelation is not because we're going to be able to piece all of it together and all of that kind of stuff. The purpose is to keep us motivated so that we stay on task so that we do not fall asleep. We have a gospel to preach we have a people to reach. God has put you in these last days 
not somebody else. He didn't put Charles Spurgeon in this time frame. He didn't put, you know, um, any, any pillar of the faith. He put you here, and he wants you to be his ambassador. He wants you to go into the world and tell people about Jesus Christ. So do it. Next, we find the penman of the revelation here. He says, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Jesus made known the revelation that he was given by his father to an angel who then sent it to his servant John. Again, the, the idea is that God is using a messenger. Jesus is sending a messenger to this earth to give John the revelation. Do you know that this is the only book in the New Testament that is delivered this way? No other New Testament book was delivered by way of an angel. Every other New Testament writer was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote what the, what the Spirit of God flowed through them to write. Literally, God's breathed out word, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 3.16. It's the Holy Spirit inspiring the writers to write every single word the way that they wrote it with the meaning that he intended them to write. But this book, this book is different. This book was given through an angel. John, we'll see next week in the spirit, an angel shows up and he just starts showing him things. He's like, John, let me show you something. And then he starts to reveal to John what Jesus has revealed to him. The only time in the New Testament that's happened. There's something significant about those kinds of things in the Bible, folks. When they only happen once or they happen very rarely, they're special. There's a reason for it. Here's what we see. It's interesting that Jesus himself, and perhaps this is the purpose. I don't know. This is speculation. But, but perhaps the purpose of the, why this is delivered this way is because God is showing us what's happening in the, in, the, in the spiritual realm that God uses angels all the time to do all kinds of things. And here's the reality of it is, in chapters 4 through 13, every chapter mentions an angel and they're doing something that God has directed them to do and it has something to do with hap what's happening here on earth. So perhaps that's the reason why. Or maybe God just wanted to give John a vivid vision of what was going to come. I don't know. And he wanted an angel to show him. I, whatever the case is, an angel delivered it to John. And John wrote it down for you and I. And here we have it here. The, the, he, he, Jesus said this again in Revelation chapter 22 verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. Testify to you and I. It's for us. For the church. For the churches, it's for us so that we understand these things. Not for the world. It's for you and I. Notice John as the bondservant was given this revelation and he has bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ even to all that he saw. John is pinning what he bore witness to. Now John physically saw Jesus. He walked with Jesus. He was taught by Jesus. He bore witness of Jesus in that sense. He also bore witness of the Word of God because he wrote the Word of God. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He bore witness about things. But this, in, in general, he's talking about, he's ascribing the book of Revelation to the Word of God. It is the Word of God. 
This, this is uh, the Lord telling us, this is directly from me. This is something that he has given. It's part to be part of the word of God. And it is to testify of Jesus Christ himself. To lay a testimony, not just of the humanity of Christ, but of the deity of Christ. Who Jesus is before the world began. Who Jesus will be after this world is long gone. He will be God forever and ever. He is God. And he's represented as God. And John bore witness of these things. And in fact, it is the Apostle John who writes perhaps what is the most prolific uh, portion of Scripture that describes Jesus as the Word of God. Remember, John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is that speaking of? Jesus Christ. John bore witness of the Word of God. Who is Jesus? You want to see the Bible in literal form? You look at Jesus Christ. He is the Word of God. He became flesh. He became a man. But He is God. And John presented Him as God, and He will present Him as God throughout this entire 22 chapters. He bears witness of the testimony of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. John is the penman of the revelation, which leads us to the final point here where we find the promise of a revelation in verse 3 there. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. I love that word blessed. You guys know what that means? Oh, how happy. Oh, how happy. I like that. That makes me happy. <laughs> Oh, how happy is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. It makes us joyful, happy to know that Jesus Christ is on our side. Do you know everything written in this book um, is, is written to a Christ-rejecting world? It's written to a Christ-rejecting world. It's God's last-ditch effort to gain the heart of man to draw them to himself. Here's the reality of it is. You and I, we read it, in it with a different perspective. We are blessed to read this because we understand where we're headed. We understand our relationship with the Lord. That it's by grace through faith that we're saved. That the wrath of God does not apply to you and I because Jesus took the wrath on the cross. That these things don't apply to us. It's, we're, it's ha we are happy. We are blessed to read these words out loud. And then he goes on, and there's three things he tells us to do. Read it out loud, to hear it, and to keep it. Three things. Read it out loud, hear it. Now, this is something that applies, I think, to the, old, to, to the, to the um, early church. Because think about it. When they gathered together, how many Bibles did they have? None. They had zero Bibles. They had letters circulating. How many copies of the letter of Revelation did they have? Everybody, bring, hey, everybody, break out your scroll of Revelation, you know, and you're like, okay, well, no, they had one, maybe, if they were lucky. And what did they do? The only way for everybody who was assembled in that place is for them to read it out loud. So they would stand, there would be a person designated as they would come in, and they would read the Word of God out loud. What would the congregation do? They would hear it. Not listen to it. Hearing and listening are two different things. He wants us to hear it. 
Literally, that word here means to govern, to, to watch over, to hold on to. He wants you to govern the Word of God. When it comes forth, when you hear it aloud, that you just don't let it pass through your mind, but you hold on to it. You govern over it. And then He wants you to keep it. He wants you to hold on to it. He wants you to store it like treasure. He does not want you to forget what you read or what you heard. He wants you to, to memorize His Word, to know His Word. Why? Because His Word will set you free. It's the truth that sets you free. And sometimes you don't know why you're holding on to something that you're holding on to until it, until it occurs to you in a moment like, oh, that's why I know that scripture, because of this moment. You, you, you read the word aloud. There's something about putting the devil on notice when we read the word of God out loud and we say, hey, this is what's going to happen. I love to read the, the book of Revelation out loud because it puts the entire demonic realm on notice that they lose, that they will be cast in the lake of fire, and that they will never, ever be able to tempt man again. That will happen. Read the word of God aloud. There's power in his word. You read it out loud. You hear it. Not just listen, but you really receive it. And then you hold on to it and you apply it to your life. You do what it says. Why? For the time is near. The time is near, folks. The time is near. When we speak about time in, the, in, in this particular context, he's, not, he's talking about seasons or epochs or eras. He's talking about long periods of time here. And um, this is where you can get into what's called dispensationalism or dispensational theology, where you look at the Bible as it's written and divided into specific time frames. I think it's interesting. I'm a dispensationalist. I'll disclose that. I, I think that God has been, he, he shows himself in different ways. He relates to man in different ways throughout different ages for different purposes. If you're not familiar with it, um, the first dispensation is the age of innocence. That starts at creation to the fall of man. We have the age of innocence, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Then we have the age of conscience. From the fall to the time of, you know, to the, to the flood. We have from the fall to the flood, we have the age of conscience. Then we have the age of human government, which is from the flood to Abraham. Then the age of promise, which again begins with who? Abraham. And then it ends at the Exodus. And then what happened at the Exodus? We were given the age of the law. It was when the law was instituted. We have uh, the, the, the age of the law, which begins at the exodus and ends at the cross, right? What happened at the cross? The age of grace. Jesus Christ came in. He, he, he uh, fulfilled every single jot and tittle of the law for you and I. We're now in the age of grace, spanning from the cross to the rapture of the church. Then we have, which again, this is, uh, this is my view, but then we have the age of wrath, which spans from what I believe to be the rapture to the second coming of Christ, and then finally the age of the millennium. I believe there's eight dispensations. Some say there's seven. Some say there's nine. Some say there's three. Here's the reality of it is I could go with seven easy too because really I could lump in the seven-year tribulation period with the age of grace because I believe it is, it is God's grace. But I like to call it the age of wrath. I like to separate it, even though it's not really an epoch it's not really a long period of time. It's seven literal years. 
But these are the different dispensations. You can read those for yourself or whatever. But, but here's the reality of it is, is there, there is a time that God has set aside, and that time is near. From John writing this some 2,000 years ago, he was saying time is near. Time is near. There, 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 this, this age is coming to a close. God is going to relate to the world in one other way, and it's going to be through his wrath. And then Jesus will come in the millennial kingdom, and he'll rule and reign for a thousand years. If you've never seen, there's a, will you throw that, um, that, that, that uh, yeah, this chart up? If you've never seen anything like this, this is sort of dispensationalism, but you can follow it through, and you can kind of see all the different uh, big events that have happened and how they'll happen were kind of the order of what I believe they'll happen anyhow. And uh, it's, it's just interesting to look at, but time is near, folks. Oh, they've been saying that for years. It's because it's an epoch. It's an era. And that's a long period of time, but that period of time is going to come to a close. Listen, we are advancing in technology and things like no other, no other generation has, has advanced before in the history of the world. We are printing organs. We're trying to create human beings. We're trying to do things. I liken where we are today to the Tower of Babel, folks. We are, I, I don't believe that God is going to allow the world to continue to advance in this way. What did he say in the Tower of Babel? If I don't do something, they're going to be able to do anything. And we're close, folks. I believe God is going to interrupt this system and show us for the, <laughs> for the last time who he is and what he wants to do in our life. He gives you and I a promise, though, in this word that if we will read it aloud, if we will hear it, if we will keep it, that he'll bless you. That he'll bless you seven times through the book of Revelation. There are blessings. The book begins with a blessing. It ends with a blessing. And there's blessings in between. He wants you and I to be blessed. He wants us to understand what's being said here. Why? So that we're not, so that we don't go to sleep. He wants you on task. He wants you alert. He wants you knowing what's happening. He, here's what can happen, though, and this is the other side of this. You can become extreme in your eschatology to a point where you, where you are all about trying to understand and apply all of these things that you also lose sight of the mission. That's also not what we're trying to do. What we're trying to do is stay motivated to know that there, is a, there, is, there will be a time when the Lord will cut this, this era off and he will start a new one and it will be the, an era of wrath. And he wants you and I to stay motivated. He wants you and I to be on task. He wants you, us to be focused. And, um, you know, there, there is no better time to be living in the church, to be part of the church and to be living in this world than right now, folks. There, this is, we are blessed people. We have the entirety of the Word of God. There's no other generation of Christians that have sat in your seat and be, been in your position where Israel's become a nation, where things are, are happening, you know, eschatologically so fast that you're like, whoa, this, this could literally happen tomorrow. It could. It could. It's interesting that Schofield, in his Schofield Bible, he wrote this 100 years ago. 
He said, much of what is now obscure will become clear to those for whom it is what was written as the time approaches. Things are becoming way clearer, folks. Way clearer than they've ever been. You and I could be the very last uh, church people that live on this earth before the Lord takes the church from this place. We need to stay on mission. And I think what I, the thing that I'm hearing over and over and over again in various different churches across America is the church needs to, get, to be, become awake, to stop sleeping. The church needs to repent, return to the Lord, and to stay on task. So here's the thing is I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what's going on in your life, but here's what I know. God has given us this book to help us understand, to stay motivated so that we can be usable in this world. Your life is not about your career. Your life is not about, I, I hate to say it, your kids. Your life is not any about, it really should be centered on one person, and that is Jesus Christ. And from him flow everything else. So if that's not you this morning, maybe today is the day that you center yourself on Jesus and you say, Lord, I want to live my remaining days, whatever that might be, to be usable for you in these last days. I want to notify every single person that you put in my path about the grace of God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ. I want to be on mission for you, Lord. I want to be used so that when I stand before you one day, I hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. What an incredible three verses that we have here in the book of Revelation, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to take what we've, we've studied this morning to encourage us, Lord, to just transform us, to help us, Lord, to, to stay on task. Father, we don't have to fear the things that are written in this book. We fear you and you alone, and that is a reverent fear. We're not fearing what's going to happen because we know what's going to happen. And so we ask you, Lord, to put our hearts at ease this morning for those of us who are truly in you. Lord, that we wouldn't be alarmed by the things that we see going on in the world today. We just would chalk this up to you positioning yourself in these last moments, Lord, to accomplish your purposes. We ask you, Lord, for each and every heart in this place, you know everything that's going on in our lives. You know all the things that we deal with on a daily basis. You know whether we are asleep right now or we are awake. You know whether we are walking strongly with you or, or we have faded to the, to the background, Lord. And we, we want to just respond to you this morning with a fresh heart and say, Lord, here I am, as Isaiah said, send me. Use me, Lord. So we just pray over the congregation even now, Lord, that you would draw all hearts to yourself. Everybody watching online, anybody that is uh, hearing this, Lord, maybe down, down the road someday, sometime, that you would draw our hearts to yourself right now. We repent, Lord, we return to you. Do your work in us, God. Maybe for some this morning, they don't know you as your Lord and, as Lord and Savior. We pray that they would have the courage to come up to the front and be prayed over by these folks that will be up here to pray. They would receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That their sins would be washed away. That they could know that they know that they know that they're going to heaven. So we just ask you to do your work in these last moments, Lord. And help us to respond to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.